If you would also open your Bibles to the book of Romans, what a fascinating week it has been, huh? I'd had some uh, ideas this week for what I thought the Lord was saying uh, for where we are in Romans. And uh, on Wednesday, that was uh, where we were going. But by last night, uh, that's not where we're going because I really just feel that... uh, that what, the, what the Lord says here in Romans 8 is actually uh, pretty appropriate for what we're experiencing right now in our country. Uh, if you remember last week, we actually we hit uh, Romans 8, we were in 22, where it says that we know, verse 22, the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. And I asked some of you uh, ladies on uh, Facebook to tell me, you know, what, what were some things you said to your significant other, your husband, during childbirth, in the throes of childbirth. And what I think the theme was, a couple of things. One, uh, lots of scratching and physical harm. Uh, Scars. I think that was Angela Rankin said that she clawed her husband. Uh, Sue, actually, if I remember right, said that there was... um, her husband made her uh, put a towel in the cart. And i got to say, that actually kind of made sense to me. I'm sorry. But, you know, that stuff stains. If your water would have broke, I, I get that. So that made, kind of made sense to me, but, you know, be that as it may. Uh, when people are groaning in childbirth, they say some, you know, pretty fascinating things. Uh, we, we did, uh, we're very pro-epidural. Like, if they needed somebody to get on the TV like, to talk about the non-paid, non-celebrity endorsement of it, I'd be front row. Like, uh, it helped me. I don't know about you, but it was awesome for me. <laughs> groaning as in childbirth. <laughs> Because it, it hurts uh, to have a baby. And then it also says that we who are believers would be groaning, but it's a different kind of groaning. It's a groaning for an adoption. It's waiting for, we were, I was at the, uh, the, my kids love to torture themselves by going to the, uh, the animal shelter to see all the animals they will not be getting. And so they, uh, last week there was this cat that just was like, you know, just groaning for Lauren to adopt her and take her home. <laughs> I thought, that's it, that's the Romans 8 thing. Uh, incidentally, uh, in Haiti, speaking of groaning, uh, I was in my little hotel room, and I heard this groaning um, in the room next to me, and it, but it was like somebody was being hurt. Like I was, well, first I thought, is it a voodoo thing? Like, you know, like is it the Satan, or is it something else? And, but it was like, just kept getting louder and more persistent, and so I did what you should not do, which is I went to open the door to see. Because if, if somebody needed help, I, I don't know what I was thinking. And so I opened the door, and out came a cat that had been in there apparently longer than he had wanted to be, and went, Meow! and just you know, right out the door like cats do. And I mean, scared me so bad. It was like just this horrifying thought. Because cats are pretty rare in Haiti, because they'll eat them. So if they... No, I'm actually being serious. It's like the ice cream truck went by when a cat comes by. They're like, oh, it's exciting. Uh, and so you don't see very many of them there. And so it's very, I, was, I could not have been more unprepared for a cat to run out and, at night and <laughs> the demons. Anyway, so be that as it may, uh, Paul would go on to say now in verse 28, creation is groaning, we're groaning, the Holy Spirit's groaning. But we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. 
For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And verse 30, and those he predestined, he also called, and those he called, he also justified, and those he justified, he also glorified. Verse 31, he says, then what shall we say then in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is it that condemns? Christ Jesus who died. More than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. And who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship, persecution, or famine, or nakedness, danger, or sword. As it is written, for your sake, we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. That's one of those scriptures you don't put on the little post-it note on the fridge, right, to remind yourself of that in the morning. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life Neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Father, would you give us wisdom and discernment this morning that as we um, dive into your scriptures and to your word that it is a lamp for our feet we're in a society, we're in a, a global society where we really need direction. We really need wisdom and discernment on how to move and to speak and to represent you. And would you show us that this morning and through your spirit speak to each of us individually. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. The world uh, has, seems to have lost its mind. This was a week where I was just like fascinated at some of the things that were going, the more public things, of course, is, you know, the guy that owns Chick-fil-A, he's a nice guy, you know, he makes good chicken, and, and he's, he's on a, a radio show, and he says, uh, you know, he's praying for God's mercy and on our society, and, and somehow, you know, that being pro-family and whatever turned into Roseanne Barr tweeting, I hope everybody that eats bleep filet gets cancer and dies. Like, that was the Roseanne, and it was like the only one I could actually repeat this morning, tweet. And they just kept coming, and it was like, you know, Bill Maher has lost his mind. It's like this, this assault on Christianity for a guy that genuinely, I mean, it, it's like they throw him in the same barrel as the Westboro Baptist Church people. Uh, and it was just really fascinating. I was thinking, man, this is, like, the nations are raging, right? I mean, globally, that is a true story, whether it's in Mali right now, which is plummeting into civil war, whether it is in Syria, whether it is even Russia pretending to build a naval base in Cuba. Uh, I could go through the, please, like, please don't, but Somalia, Sudan, I mean, the world, the nations are raging. And it reminded me of, of a scripture, and I thought, you know, what we're experiencing now is not unlike what the 
early church experience, and I speak globally, not as much locally, when they were being persecuted and flogged and imprisoned. And it was in that context in Acts chapter 4 that Peter would stand up and say, he was actually quoting from the book of Psalms. He had just gotten uh, out of prison. He had been interrogated. And so he is now going back to his Uh, the church, basically. He's going back to the church, his brothers and sisters in Christ, and he reported what happened, and it says that they, uh, says the, that they began to pray. And verse 25, part of that prayer is that you spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David, that why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. He was quoting from Psalm chapter 2. When David in this messianic prophecy says, opens up the verse 1, why do the nations rage? Why do the people imagine vain things? And I looked at it a little closer this week and I noticed something I had not noticed before, that the word imagine, plot, it's translated many different ways. The Hebrew word is chogah and it means to groan. Creation is groaning. Why do they groan vain things? And what we're experiencing, I believe, is part of that. Because it really is kind of, I mean, at the end of the day, even if you just looked at it logically and you take religion out of the picture and just like, let's just have a logical conversation. It's not possible because there is so much hatred, so much rage being spewed, so much groaning being imagined and created and that you can't have the conversation and it was thinking well what do we do about that the temptation is to go ahead and just put some real spiteful tweets to Roseanne like that's fun I resisted the temptation I think to understand this we have to understand our enemy the enemy by the way isn't Roseanne The enemy is Satan. Lucifer, as his name was before. And to understand what is happening today, to understand what he is doing, I believe that, well, what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 2 is we shouldn't be ignorant of our enemy's devices, his tactics. 1 Peter 5, 10 would tell us to be awake and to be vigilant and to be conscious because your enemy walks around like a roaring lion. Interesting, he doesn't say he is a roaring lion. He is like a roaring lion, which means he is a a devil in a lion suit. See, Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah. He is not like a lion. He is the lion. And so Satan dresses up in a little lion suit. Did you see the images this week of the guy in Utah in the goat suit running around the mountains? Anybody know? See that? What the world is a guy in a goat suit? It turned out he was a hunter trying to scope out the stuff. And there was like this huge like thing, like this viral thing. Does anybody know about the goat suit guy? And like, what about the goat boy from Saturday Night Live? Maybe it's him. He's out of work, you know? So he, uh, it turns out it wasn't. But, but that's Satan, just this kooky guy running around in a, in a, in a lion suit. But it, uh, I think to understand it, to be not ignorant of his devices, you have to go back to the beginning. And I'm not saying the garden, but I'm saying the beginning of Satan's fall itself. Jesus would actually say that I beheld you as 
uh, lightning falling from heaven. Speaking of Lucifer. And there is a passage in Ezekiel. You don't have to turn there unless you're really feeling frisky about knowing where Ezekiel is. But it talks, there's a prophecy against the king of Tyre. And in this prophecy, and you'll see this from time to time in scripture, it's a prophecy against the king of Tyre, but you're clearly like, no, he's talking to Satan. I believe throughout history, it talks about, you know, in, in the scriptures, this man or that man and these principalities and powers. I, I wonder if, first of all, Satan is not omnipresent. He's not omniscient. He's not everywhere. He, he probably doesn't know my name. He's got stuff going on. But there are times where you see something like this, you think, well, maybe it's because he is, whether it was Hitler or Mussolini, or that maybe it's Satan himself that indwells that person and is antichrist in the earth in that person because this prophecy against the king of Tyre is clearly against Satan. And in verse 15, it says that you were blameless in your ways, talking to Lucifer, till wickedness was found in you. And through your widespread trade, you were filled with violence and sin. And so I drove you in disgrace from the mount of God, and I expelled you, O guardian cherub, from among the fiery stones, because, it says, you became proud. And on account of your beauty, and you corrupted your wisdom because of your splendor, saying that, hey, I, you know, I got this all figured out, so I'm going you know, to accommodate how amazing I am. I'm going to change a little bit of what is right and wrong to accommodate me. He said, you corrupted your wisdom. It was pride, the original sin. Proverbs would give us a list of seven of them, and it starts out with pride. It was the beginning of it, because in pride, what I am saying is, I am smart enough to do this on my own. That I am making myself equal to God. And I believe this because in Isaiah 14, in another prophecy that it was against the king of Syria, that again, when you look at it, it talks about you were in the garden of God. You were, I mean, it's clearly a prophecy that involves Satan himself. And it says in verse 12 of Isaiah 14, that how you have fallen from heaven, O morning star, son of the, the dawn, you have been cast down to the earth. You once laid low the nations. You said in your hearts, I will ascend to heaven and I will raise my throne above the stars of God. Speaking of the time when Satan himself will be thrown into the fiery pit, it's saying, I'm, I'm laying you low. It says, I will raise my throne above the stars of God. This is what Lucifer said. I will sit enthroned on the mountain of the assembly. On the utmost heights of the sacred mountain, I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will Make myself like the most high, equal to God. Equality is not something that he promised me. And when I hear a conversation in our society about equality, make no mistake that the deeper question for me is the equality of me and God himself. Because when I begin to say things like, you know, God is this awesome God. He loves me so much. I don't see how he could possibly have done X. You know, how could he, uh, you know, hell has been the one that's been floating around lately. How could a loving God do that? So I'm going to say that he didn't. Because the God that I serve would never do that. And what I am doing is instead of God making me in his image, I am now making God in my image. 
I am not lowering God to my level. That's impossible. I'm attempting to raise myself to his level to say that I know better than you. The sin of pride that desires equality with God is one that each of us struggle with. It's not one that you can just throw at a certain community. It's all of us. I love to read the Bible and get the good stuff and put it on my wall, and that's mine, and that's mine, and those who are godly in Christ Jesus must suffer persecution. Nope, I'm done with that one. Turn the other cheek. Don't repay evil for good. I'd love to tweet evil for good. You know what I mean? I mean evil for evil. I love that. That's what I want to do. But when I understand the sin and what it is that he's doing, then I could understand the tactics that he can use against me and against you. And for that, we get a front row seat at Genesis chapter 3 because there's nothing new under the sun. Satan is not a creator. He's not coming up with new stuff. His tricks are as old as they've ever, you know, it's him himself. Like these were around from the beginning of mankind. We know that what he wants is for us to be prideful enough to say that I know better than God. Prideful enough to say that I know right and wrong. Prideful enough to say that I want equality with God. It started in Genesis 3 when it says, verse 1, that the serpent was more crafty than any of the other wild animals. He said to the woman, does God really say that you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat from the trees in the garden, but God, uh, but God did say you must not eat from the fruit uh, from that tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. In verse 4, he says, you will not die. The serpent said, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And it would go on and they would you know, partake of this fruit and they would feel shame and then they would be separated, marginalized away, hiding from God. His tricks from the beginning of time. To say, did God really say that? He's just holding out on you. When I hear a doctrine that makes me uncomfortable, uh, my first temptation, man, did God really say that? Did he? Because it's, you know, ugh. Did he really? And then it goes from that to, well, I don't think he did because, well, how could a loving God do that? So I can be like him, knowing good from evil, which intones that I can decide what is good and what is evil. I make it my choice and not his. I'm elevating myself to equality with God in that situation. And Eve would say, he said, don't touch it. But that isn't what he said, is it? He said, don't eat from it. She added, don't touch it. Legalism was born in the church. Don't, don't even touch alcohol. Don't ever even drink it. That's legalism. I'm adding to what the scriptures say. And the problem with legalism is all of a sudden I get all these rules and these regulations and God gave us plenty of stuff to do. Oftentimes in the, where you see the media whatever, attacking us, it's actually in our areas of legalism when we've added something to it that was never meant there to begin with. And Kevin Bacon goes and makes a movie about it. Too obscure? Sorry. 
He would say to Eve that and she would eat and then they would be separated in shame. And it reminds me then of what I'm seeing in Acts chapter four. It reminds me of what I see today. And I feel like that if we look at what Acts chapter four shows us, that what Satan who is still alive, still roaring around like a, like a roaring lion, that when Peter would stand up and say this about why do the nations rage, why do they imagine vain things, it was right in the middle of them going through some hellish times. Way, way worse than Wolf Blitzer. Like bad stuff going on to them. And it would, starts here in Acts chapter 4, verse 1. It says that they were greatly disturbed, verse 2, speaking of the, uh, the captain of the temple guard, the Sanhedrin, the Sadducees, the, the leaders, the famous people, the powerful people were offended and disturbed by what they had heard. Understand that our goal has never been popularity. We've turned it into that. It just wasn't the goal. The idea that the truth is the truth and then some will believe and some won't and some will get really mad about it and some won't. But these guys were mad about it. And it says that uh, they put them in prison. And then in verse 13 it says that when they saw the courage of Peter and John, they realized that they were unschooled and ordinary men and they were amazed. They, were, they thought they were so stupid they were astonished at how stupid they were. Bill Maher thinks you're an idiot. Christopher Dawkins, Hitchens, Richard Dawkins, they think you're stupid. The media thinks that I'm stupid. They marvel at how we could possibly believe this. Well, they're just uneducated. And what is happening is, here, not only is a physical marginalization when they marginalize them into a prison but a philosophical marginalization to say that you guys are stupid you're ignorant I'm marginalizing you to the edge of this because you're just too dumb to know any better the technique that is going on to this day was going on in the early church it says that Let's skip ahead to verse 20. This was Peter's response to this, for we could not help speaking about what we have seen and heard. Now make note of that because we're going to come back to it. Their responses to it. Where I'm going to show you what happened to them and I'm going to show you what their responses were. And I believe that if we align our responses with these guys, that we're going to be in really good company. Go with me to chapter 5, verse 17. Fast forward. It's a few days later. The apostles again are in trouble. They're being called in to be interrogated, to be imprisoned. This was after they had been in prison and they walked out. And Keeping in mind, by the way, miracles were happening everywhere. The idea that I have sometimes, man, if God, if you just do one of those big money miracles, everybody would believe. These guys, part of their context of the Pharisees and the Sadducees was, these guys are doing miracles. This is obviously real, so we gotta, we got to hide it. That was their response. So the miracles did not convince anybody that was not already going to be convinced. And in verse 17, it says that the high priest and his associates, who were members of the party, again, these are the famous people, the powerful people, they were filled with jealousy. I think the King James says indignation. And they put them in public jail. And during the night, the Lord opened the doors, and the miracle happened, the one I was talking about, where the angels let them out. And again, they say, we got to shut these guys up. 
Understand that the marginalization philosophically, physically, is about shutting us up. The enemy would like us to be quiet. And by using these tactics, he wants to move forward in that way. So we see that the first tactic is marginalization. The next, next tactic is one that I think is fascinating when you look at it in the context of what's happening in our society, is bearing false witness. Like, what? Isn't that lying? Kind of. There's two examples in the New Testament of when a false witness was brought in. The best way for the Bible to be interpreted is to let the Bible interpret the Bible. When Jesus was being accused by the, uh, the, the, in front of Pontius Pilate, they brought in false witnesses and they said that he said he would tear down this temple and rebuild it again in three days. That was true, but it was false, meaning it was the right information, the wrong implication, false witness. It would happen again with Stephen in this next chapter, when Stephen would stand up and they would bring false witnesses against him and say that he said he was going to tear down the temple and he blasphemes and he, he says this and, and he, the things that he was saying were true, they were true of what he was saying, but it was the right information, the wrong implication, it was false witness when a guy like Dan Cathy, and I don't, look, I don't know the guy from a hole in the wall. He might be a jerk. I don't know. But when he prays for mercy, and then that is the right information to say that, yeah, he, is, he took a stand here. That's the right information, but the wrong implication, that he is a hatred-filled bigot. False witness. And it happens across the board. We're like, no, that's not what I'm saying at all. And it would happen with the disciples when they would stand in front of uh, of the Sadducees and say, oh, you're, they, you, know, you guys are saying that we killed them. You want our blood on his hands. Right information. They're saying that he killed them. Wrong implication. They're saying that because he died, they could have forgiveness of sins. That was the implication, the false witness that was born. And in the Garden of Eden, the false witness was, you'll be like God, knowing good from evil. Right information. You'll know good from evil. Wrong implication. You will not be like God. You will just be a, a human in a God suit, pretending. The false witness was around from the beginning of time. Marginalization, false witness. The did God say that tactic? Did he really say that? He said it to Eve. You see it over and over again. These guys are questioning the disciples about what that because they were reading from the scriptures when Peter would stand up when Stephen would stand up they quoted scripture boom 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 God didn't really say that protected their power base or and so the did they say that tactic did the word really say that is rampant in our world the Bible is not unlike a man in that if you torture it long enough you can make him say whatever you want to and people make a living off of this on the blogosphere Rewriting scripture to accommodate my thing. Equality with God. Did God really say that? I don't like that one. I'm going to write this one instead. And the last tactic is, is shame. You see, I had envisioned, I think, in the uh, persecution of the church, I actually envisioned a lot of what Dana's going to share with us here in a few seconds of being imprisoned. And, and that's real hardcore. And it's actual. And it's happening all around us. In, in our society, this part of the persecution is really fascinating because it's a shaming one. When they talk about us, I don't know if you've, I, I tend to, people make fun of me because I don't, I don't watch necessarily news channels that agree with me. 
I already know what I think. I'd like to see what they think. I'd like to understand what, what's happening in the world. And, and I mean, they talk about us dismissively at best, condescending, insulting, shaming us. And in the garden, what was the tactic? Shame shuts you up. Adam and Eve, God was looking for them to go and to talk and to commune. He didn't go anywhere. This idea that God went and like, you know, he was looking for them and they were the ones hiding because of shame and it shut them up. Marginalization, false witness. Did God really say shame? Been around since the beginning of time. And in our world right now, that is happening to us. And the question for the body of Christ is, do I really believe that all things are working together for the good of us who love him and are called according to his purposes? Because I don't act like that when I get furious. I don't act like it when I want to send out a witty and stinging tweet to someone to show my discomfort and disapproval with a good vocabulary. I feel like, you know, that can really, that'll get them. Do I really believe that all things are working together for the good of us who love him and are called according to his purpose? When I see the disciples and the, the apostles' response, I feel like that we get our response from them. If we'll steal their plays, so to speak, and look at what they did, it gives us a perfect playbook. It's going to feel counterintuitive. It's going to feel uncomfortable. It's going to feel like I'm letting somebody get one by on me. But all I can say is it's also going to feel like Jesus because this is the playbook that he gave us. See, my temptation in my side as a believer is to make me equal to God, equality with God. Because when I'm judging someone to say that you are condemned, you are this, then I am putting myself in the Holy Ghost junior chair and saying you are, I'm saying who gets to go to heaven and who doesn't. We don't get to know that. I'm putting myself in the judgment seat and saying, hey, God, scoot, scooch over. Hang on, you're crowding it. I, I got something to say on this one. I put myself in the judgment seat and I am declaring with pride that I am equal, that I have equality with God myself, equally sinful. I love what Angela Rankin wrote in her blog. It's about the, the uh, tree of the knowledge of the good and evil and it's like making a, a, a good and evil smoothie. You're mixing them together. Both sides can get you in trouble. What they did was really simple, and if you've got a pen, write them down, or you can get the recording, you can get it later, but they were very purposeful in what they did. Number one, and this may not be in the right order, but when it was a false witness given against them, when the right information but the wrong implication was given, they were just a witness. Stephen stood up in chapter seven and gave an amazing sermon back to back, and all it was was the truth. It was scripture, back to back. He told the truth. The purpose of the Holy Spirit, Acts 1.8 says, is to give us power to be his witnesses. You have that power inside of you, the Holy Spirit, to be his witnesses. Not to join in the fray, not to throw false witness back at them, not to become part of the talking head parade, but to throw back at them truth, which is Jesus. The only response to a false witness is a true witness, the response to marginalization, to philosophically marginalize you, to imprison you, is unification. What they want is you marginalize, separate the herd, get into the corner. That is the enemy's plan. 
When you're here this morning and you're part of a family of believers, when you're part of a small group, but maybe at your church, or if you're part of conduit, part of a conduit community, when Peter and John came back from prison, the first thing they did was go to their brothers and sisters together and they were unified. Unification in prayer. The only antidote to marginalization is Holy Spirit-inspired unification. The response to shame when he wants to shame us. Interesting, by the way, when Peter and John prayed in that prayer back in chapter 4, they didn't pray, God, uh, kill Roseanne. Uh, God, make her TV show suck. You know, none of that. They said, hey, God, you knew this was going to happen before time, and so my prayer is, can we still be bold Can you give us boldness? Their prayer was for boldness. Not for the persecution to subside, but for boldness to increase. The response to shame that the world would want to put on you, whether it is shame of sin in your life, but the shame that, that, you know, this is the same kind of shame that's trying to get on you. That kind of shame, the response is boldness in Christ. And our prayer, my prayer is that I could be bold. Understand that there is a school in Miami, Florida right now, That is, the school board wants to evict them. They're moving towards eviction because the pastor did a series on marriage and defined marriage as one man and one woman. And the school board is moving to evict them because that's hate speech. That's crazy, but it's it's happening. And so what I'm saying is that when I pray for the school board of Miami, what I'm praying is, God, please let that pastor be bold. Give him boldness. That if I stand and say, I really do believe that the way God intended marriage to be, according to the scriptures, is one man and one woman, that if that is hate speech, we'll meet in the parking lot. You know what I mean? It's like, I'm not, we're going to be bold enough to speak the truth, not, and again, not in a self-righteous way, not in an indignation way, just, it's, it's just the truth. And if the school here were to say to us, you have to leave because you, you hold that belief, man, there's a park right down the street. There, we don't have to have a building. And what he said to Peter and John said was, let, let God be the judge as to what's right and wrong, whether I listen to you or to him. And I would say that to you this morning, that let God be the judge. But I'm going to say what I know that the scriptures say, and I hope that you will as well with boldness. And then against the God, did God really say tactic? It's really simple. You got to know the word. Satan is a pro at twisting, contorting the scriptures. When Satan came to Jesus during the 40 days in the wilderness, all he did was quote scripture at Jesus. That was it. All of it was false witness, right information, wrong implication. Did God say this? And he was again, by the way, attempting to exalt himself to the level of God by saying, I'm going to give you the shortcut, Jesus. You don't have to give your life for these people. I'll give you this world give you the shortcuts. So you don't have to go through all of that. Again, now Satan in pride is equality with God. I'm going to do this and not your father. But we have got to know the word. Because I mean, you hear some stuff on, t- on TV that is spewed. You hear these atheist bloggers, and I encounter a lot of them in my life. Their ability to take a scripture completely out of context, to twist it, to wiggle it, to there's a reason why Paul would say to Timothy, you need to know the word and how to rightly divide the word. And in Hebrews, it talks about it as a sword, that it's sharp enough to cut between the soul and the spirit. But we have to know the word. 
The beautiful thing is it's a lamp to our feet. It's a light to our path. It's not a discipline. It's a spiritual experience. It's prayer. It's encountering the Lord in the words of this supernatural communication to us. we got to know the word. And gang, here at the end of the day, here's why. It says in Romans, we don't have anything to fear. When I'm getting mad, I'm saying it out of fear. When I don't have anything to fear, when I know that all things are working together for my good. When I know that nothing can separate me from the love of Christ. Nothing. It says here that he is seated at the right hand of the Father, interceding on my behalf. I believe that is praying and cheering us on. Oh God, watch this one. Watch this. This is going to be awesome. Watch when Darren gets E. coli in that river. That's going to be wild. It's... But I bring that up because at the end of time, what the disciples knew, what you and I need to know is that there will be nobody standing beside me when I stand before the Lord on that day. It's me and it's him. That is the only audience that I'm playing for. And I say that specifically because when I look at the end of Stephen's life, in Acts, it says that, and you don't have to go there, you can look at it later, but it says that he looked up and he saw Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. And I find that fascinating because Romans tells us he's seated at the right hand of the Father. I wonder if it's because he was watching it. And just like you, some of you guys that watch the Olympics, if your person's getting real close and they're about to win and you're like, what do you, if your kid is playing football, they're about to score the goal, the first thing you do, you stand up and you start cheering them on. And I believe that Jesus that day was watching Stephen and it was a close one. And he stood up cheering him on because Stephen cast away the shame. He walked away from the false witness. He wouldn't be shut up. Refused to be marginalized. And Jesus was like, come on, you can do it. You got this one. And welcomed him home. I'm reminded of Kim LaRocca's words at the funeral for Matt. He said that there was a point where if you guys don't know this little guy that had a brain tumor and he was like, what? It was, it was awful what he went through and he was so positive the whole time but at one moment, I hope I'm remembering this right, he had just said, what did I do to deserve this? And Kim said that what she totally envisioned and totally knew happened was that the day that he stood before Jesus a year and some change ago that he stood before Jesus saying, dang, what did I do to deserve this? This is awesome. And someday, you and I, if we finish well, we'll be able to look around and say, man, what did I do to deserve this? Man, all I got was E. coli. All I did was get beaten. All I did was, that isn't that. And when I look to those around me that want to spew hatred at me, and I ask myself why, that's the question that the psalmist asked. It's the question that Peter asked. Why do the nations rage? Why do the people groan, imagine vain things, prideful things. Again, the Bible always interprets the Bible best. It says that creation groans because it's in labor. The people that are saying mean things about us, when your wife said something mean and spiteful to you <laughs> while you're, she's 
having the baby, he didn't hold it against her. She's your wife. She's part of the family. She's having a baby for crying out loud. That hurts. Like shoving a ham through your nose. It's this awful thing. And so to say that about our fellow humans, the reason I don't, the reason that I shouldn't, the reason that I can't hurl insults and return evil for evil is they're just having a baby. They don't mean it. They're going to claw us sometimes. They might draw blood. They might say some things that, wow, boy, I can't write that on Facebook. But they're just pregnant. They're just having a baby. We don't want to hold that against them. Because it all comes back to that creation is groaning. And you and I, our groans are just a groan for an adoption that is coming. And I can say with confidence that not just all things, because it's easy to kind of hone it in on my own life, you know, that, hey, this happened, and so because of that, this is all working together, and my life just worked out pretty peachy king because of it. And, but globally, all things are working together for your good. We have an incredibly special honor this morning of someone who has had an opportunity to go through some stuff way worse than a Roseanne Barr tweet. And who 11 years later is, I believe, a living example of how all things are working together for our good, of those that are called according to his purpose and, and love God. And Dana, are you, would you come down here? Mark, do you want to come too? We had a great video that I had queued up. It was, it was a lot of work to find a video 11 years old. But my, uh, I spilled juice on my computer last night, which is kind of unfortunate. Uh, yeah, that's right. Uh, you guys can enjoy these here. Um, just, uh, yeah, how about the, yeah, that's you. I stand. I'm like, Mon, think of me. I'm Montel. And you're, yeah. uh, uh, Dana, if you, just a quick flashback. What the news story would have told you was, if you remember 11 years ago, that the, the news media, it was before we had invaded uh, Afghanistan, that there were five uh, uh, people, two of which were Americans, you and Heather, who were uh, held hostage in a Taliban uh, prison. Um, and we're getting ready to bomb, you know, bomb them, like a lot. Toby Keith's song style, you know, like we're getting ready. And, but over here are these two Americans in this prison held hostage who were uh, rescued. And when you look back on it, how is your life different because of, cause I got to tell you, I've never known anybody that's known anybody, right, that's been into that thing. And how is your life different today, 11 years later, from what, like that experience and bringing you to where you guys are today? Um, well, first of all, I, is this on? It might not be. Okay. Go. I just consider it a privilege that I got to go through that. Um, yeah, an amazing privilege. And I wasn't alone, so that made it easier. I was, there's actually eight of us. There were six, six women and two men in separate men's quarters. But So there's two Germans and an Australian lady, and then us as women, and then a German and Australian man. And these were like prayer warriors, people of faith. And so I got to be in prison with them. <laughs> you know, so... Um, and already we were working with the poor on the streets with street kids and so this and doing all kinds of aid work in Afghanistan and so even before going to prison they're 
this aid organization, every single morning we'd meet together for two hours just to pray and to worship over the country and cry out for the people. Um, and so we just kept that up in prison, just meeting together and just singing a cappella, using our little water bottles for any kind of percussion or something. You know, but God's presence was always there. I mean, he would really meet us and just, and he would give us words of encouragement. And I, um, yeah, and I remember when we found out we sort of found out about, because we were in prison about a month before, on August 3rd, the month before 9-11. And then, so we're already in there. And um, then we had a little bit of news about 9-11. And then they moved us to a new, a more high security prison. And we found out, we, we heard that they were going to start bombing us, start bombing. And all the other foreigners had been evacuated. So it was just us. In, still in Afghanistan because we were in prison for showing the Jesus film to a family. Um, and so at first I thought, no, they're not going to bomb us. There's, you know, three countries here, no way. But they went ahead and did, and I was a little sad at first, you know, a little upset, like, man. But, but, you know, but, but God was so faithful. Do you know the first night um, when we heard the planes coming in and we knew the bombing was going to start, that first night the German, one of the German women, God gave her a vision, and in this vision, she saw these angels, these huge angels, all locking arms, and they were all around the entire compound of the prison, and the Lord says, you and everyone in this compound are going to be kept safe, you know, and she even saw, like, angels holding up the walls of this prison because they were full of cracks and not real sturdy, and just even from, yeah, God was so encouraged us, and he would give us just scriptures and Remind us of stories in the Bible, like he said, just like Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego came through the fire without even the smell of smoke on their clothes, that's what he was going to do for us. And so we would cling to these promises. And even just out of um, the story of Joseph, he reminded us that what God meant for evil, no, what the enemy meant for evil, God was going to use for good. You know, and so we just held on to things like that. And, and actually, while we were in prison, we realized we started getting notes from the outside and found out in America, in Germany, in Australia, in many places around the world, they were praying for us, but not just us. They, were, they would start out praying for us, but then they started praying for the nation of Afghanistan and that God would open up this country and bring freedom to these people. And so we realized, oh my goodness, God has allowed us to be held in this prison, to get the world's eye on this country because he was mad and he, had, he loved these people and he wanted them to have a way to get the gospel and to be free. And so we just saw it as, oh my goodness, the Lord's allowed us to be in this so that he could bring freedom to a nation. Wow. And um, yeah, so that's, that's the, the, part of it. It says they, were, uh, they counted it joy that they were able to suffer shame mm. on his part. When you think back on it, Okay, because you guys are 11 years later, you're in Morocco now, and I'm going to mm -hmm. tell you about that in a minute, but w did you want to quit? Like, was there a moment where you thought, okay, uh, I've carved my notch and the gun for God, I get to retire now, or what was the, uh -huh. was there any sort of that dialogue ever going on inside your head? Did you want to quit? Um, I don't think so. <laughs> no, I think it more so, it put um, a fire in me, like, no matter what, I want to get back out there, because... Oh. Um, there's no more joy. I mean, the greatest joy is getting to take the gospel to people who haven't been able to hear or their restricted access and see their, their tears in their eyes coming down when they experience God's love. 
and God had transformed my life as a messed up teenager, totally just a mess. And his, I just learned about the father heart of God and he healed me up. And when I found out that Muslim people, they, they consider themselves slaves and they have no idea that God can be their daddy and they can become children of God and that their sins can be, you know, washed away because of Jesus and they can have eternity in heaven. And that's a guarantee. They don't know that they've been lied to. And so it's, yeah, it's a pretty life mission. As long as God allows me, I want to um, be out there doing that. Yeah. And so today you guys are in uh, Morocco, which mm-hmm. for the geopolitically astute uh, is a Muslim nation. Yeah. Um, how, how is it going into, so you're back right into, right in the, the heart of, you know, maybe it's not as radical Islam, but there are certainly contingents and, you know, uh, you know, the Muslims are certainly, it's a, a more uh, resistant people <laughs> to mm. the, because of their fear how is that decision and, and what are you guys doing there now? Can you tell us what's going on in Morocco yeah. and what, what Jesus is doing? Yeah. Before we get, can I just tell yeah. you one media thing? Yeah, absolutely. And just kind of in line with what's going on. Cause first the media was really nice to us and we were on all kinds of talk shows and they were real happy with us. But then as it came and everyone was excited, we were free, but then media kind of got started getting nasty towards us saying, well, you were there doing things illegal, and even there was this one show really um, directed just to, to shame us, basically. Yeah. And But we had an amazing agent that loved Jesus, and we just found out, like, last, like, two weeks ago, that the woman that did that um, really, I mean, it, like, t- our book sales went down because of, because of the show and everything, but, um, which is fine, but... Um, <laughs> But y'all on her, but he would talk to her about Jesus every single time he got an opportunity to share with her. And and she ended up being on a deathbed, dying of cancer, and they got to go be with her. And he led her to the Lord. She prayed and received Jesus. And she said, wow. well, yeah. Yeah. And And then she has one daughter, and she's like, will you please keep in touch with my daughter and be her spiritual mentors to my daughter. You know, so, I mean, there's so much more that came out of that, but it was so cool to even see that, the you know, they were totally slamming us, you know, but God turned it around and led wow. her to the Lord. And I'm, anyway, it was cool. But I think but. that's part of the picture, right, is that those things are, were meant for evil. Like God, he's just the master uh, artist to mm-hmm. create something out of broken pieces. Yeah. create a mosaic, you know, that is, yeah. it's awesome. And I, you know, it seems, I, you know, I know some about what you guys are doing in Morocco, but it feels like that's a huge part of the picture, right? Of yeah. the, this continued, you guys were not shut up by what the enemy had meant. If nothing, you're more bold than ever. So Mark, share about Morocco. Okay. <laughs> share about Morocco. Okay. All right. So Morocco, 37 million people. Picture the state of California, kind of long and narrow, Morocco's like that, mountains in the middle, north to south. 37 million people, 99.8% Islamic Muslim. They follow the religion of Islam. Unlike Jordan, Egypt, uh, Lebanon, there's not a Christian minority there that has been contingent, as a contingent or a voice for the Christian faith. It's just been Islamic for 13, 1200, 1300 years. Hmm. And so when you walk up to a Muslim and you say, hey, Jesus has got a great plan for your life. He loves you. He looks at you like, 
man, you are old school. You're like Windows 95, and you need to get a Mac. <laughs> you know, we're a Mac. We got the Macs, you know. Like, you just get, you go down to the Apple store and get a new, I mean, you need a new religion, you know, kind of thing. And that's really what they think. And so you're like, hmm, how do I trump that, you know? So that's kind of the contingent or the thing that you run up against. And so how would you, how would you take that on? And you got any, I thought I'd come here and ask you guys some ideas. <laughs> Twitter. Twitter. <laughs> Yeah, it's actually not a good idea. Uh, well, okay, so we we jump in their world. There's some things you could learn about. I think from this that you could in sharing with people here in the states. I lived in the state. We lived in the states for a long time, and we're extensively involved in sharing our faith with people here. So we love we love our country. Um, we jump in their world. We go back to Adam and Eve. We use that very same story and say, okay, let's go back and see what the scripture really says. Well, the scripture's been changed. Well. No, it hasn't. You know, and let's start there. And we use the story of the prophets to show our need for Jesus, starting at Adam. We jump over to, to Noah, uh, Moses, or Abraham, Moses, and then Moses, Abraham, and then uh, David, and then to Jesus. And like, they're like, wow, that's pretty, it's pretty amazing. And then we, we, we invite them to say, hey, would you be interested in studying more about this? Let's, that was a 10-minute conversation. How about a a study. We, we just back up and do a study of Adam and Eve, walk through the prophets, and if they hang with us, they often will believe. But not too many hang with us. And so that's kind of our work in Morocco. We're looking for these, uh, you can call them needles in a haystack, if you will. Not too many people are believing, but God is at work, and he's attacking and interrogating people with like dreams of Jesus. And they don't know what to do. And they're getting sick and tired of their religion. And this is Ramadan. So they're like, oh, I got to fast some more, you know. And, uh, and so there are these few that, that God prepares. And we're after those and find, to find those, disciple them so they can share with their friends. And it spreads like wildfire. Um, I don't know if that's you can go uh, a long version or short version. But. How can we, like, pray for you guys? I mean, what, what is it? Where, uh, what are the needs of, of your ministry right now? Yeah. Airplanes, um, <laughs> helicopters, helicopters. <laughs> no. I, I think um, we've been in Morocco for eight and a half years, so we haven't found too many of those needles in a haystack. And a few of them that we have found have not made it really. So we attribute that to maybe a lack of prayer, or better, better put, we need to need more prayer. So we actually have a team of people that pray for us on a weekly basis. So if you're kind of inclined to do that, you want to pray for Morocco, you have that in your heart to pray for us five minutes a day, we'll send you out a weekly thing, uh, email. And then if you want to pray for us like more on a monthly basis, which is great, we'll send you out a monthly update that will tell you all kinds of stuff that's going on. And you'll start learning about these people we call. We give them all pseudo names for security stuff. And, and <laughs> so it's kind of funny, actually. But. Yeah, and in Jordan, okay, a country, it's jump up to the Middle East. We were just at a conference, uh, our international conference. We have, I think, like 65 teams. Our organization has like 65 teams, U.S. church plants, and then overseas as well. And in Jordan, this is kind of top secret. You don't want to tweet this, okay? So, and wow. again, you're not going to hear this in the media, but there was a guy that they met who had believed. He's an older guy. He had led 12 uh, Muslims to faith. He's a Muslim. Uh, former Muslim, he comes to faith in Christ, leads 12 to faith, calls up this media station, says, hey, I need someone to help me 
disciple people. So our guy on the ground said, hey, I'm here. He engages this guy. They start training him. We call him Noah. His, that's not his real name. He's a real powerful guy. He used to be a political activist. He's a real solid leader. From those 12, it spreads within a year to 5,000 people, like baptized. Like, you know, like, you know, they get, a Muslim gets baptized. That's a big. It's a big deal. He jumps over. Now, this, you're never going to hear this, and you can't tweet this for sure if you're going to tweet the other thing. Don't do this. <laughs> this is a brand new report that happened two weeks ago. This guy, Noah, he's, he's a Drew, which means he's got some Syrian uh, ancestry. So he jumps over to Syria. This happened like a month ago. He's in Syria. Gover he connects with the government leaders. I don't understand the story. I can't explain it. Like 200 come to faith in like a week. He gives them the studies, the things he does. Go, now go do this. And, and we've heard, this is what he said, secondhand report, 14,000, 11,000 Syrian believers, kind of up in the upper level government, somewhere in there, you know, 11,000. Crazy. What? Now, yeah. we don't know if those are believers. We don't know if those are like, they're in the study process, going through these studies. And hey, guys, that is way encouraging. Yeah. God can do something in a moment in the, in the Arab world. And four months ago, oh, yeah, four months ago, back in Jordan, jump back over to Jordan. Another one of our team members, way to go team members, they reach out to a, a, a taxi driver, share with him. A short story, he believes he's one of those needles in a haystack. Starts sharing goes from like, what is it, that 1,100 people in four months that are baptized believers. No building. 300 in Syria, 900 in, the, in Jordan. Baptized believers, no building, no anything. They're just sharing, meeting in groups, meeting in homes, meeting in coffees, shops. Wow. Just crazy. So if you want to pray for us, pray for those guys. We're looking for those guys, the Noahs, the, uh, these needles in a haystack type people. And that would be our hugest prayer. Yeah. I think my wife wants to say something. It was just encouraging to this guy, the, the taxi driver guy. Jesus helped out quite a bit, too, because they were going through the lessons with him. But then also he, Jesus appears to him in a dream, dressed in the local garb, and just looks at him in the eyes and says, share, they need to hear about me. Share with your people about me. And so that kind of got him fired up. You know? it'll, it'll do that. <laughs> I think that what, if we can walk away today with some thoughts and some ideas that uh, Islam isn't our enemy. Islamic people are not our enemy. They, uh, at, the, at the state level, whatever, you know, but on, we're, not a, we're not that nation. We're, the Peter says we're part of a holy nation. We're a separate nation. We're, so as far as the Christian nation goes, that's not our enemy. Those are hostages. Yeah. And in the same way that I didn't, you know, when I remember 11 years ago, man, they can't bomb that. What if they get the hostages? We don't shoot hostages in a war. And these are not our enemy, they're hostages. And our weapons, it says, are not carnal, but mighty to pulling down of strongholds. And the weapons of our warfare, the, the word of God, the sharper than any two-edged sword, it's the offensive weapon and the armor of God. And it's led by, of course, love and uh, boldness. And you know, for us as, a, as an American people sitting in Williamson County, uh, to know that God hasn't fallen off the throne he is at work. Things that are going on are, were predicted long ago. And, and ultimately that he, is, uh, he loves Islamic people. He loves Arab people, us people, all the people. And our job is to do that. And 
today, if you are feeling led, um, maybe we're inspired by what you hear from these guys today. If you could, what's the name of the ministry? Is there a name? I'm supposed to be saying these things all the time. I forget. Yeah, Antioch Ministries International. Antioch Ministries International. The site someone did for us, it mentions how you can get involved with us financially from your smartphone to your old, not your current one, your old smartphone to, your, to, to monthly support. It's all up there. We don't have any cards or anything. We haven't been back from Morocco very long to get all that squared away. But um, if you want to connect with us through prayer, oh, wow, there you go. Way to go, AV guy. Giddy All right. Way to go. Here hey, we are. That's Jonathan um, Hobson. Way to go, Jonathan. <laughs> so there you go. Just, it's pretty clear. Uh, those are our kids. They're all born in Morocco. Uh, Ken's is in the middle. Ken's is a Moroccan Arabic name. Um, so just hmm. connect there, again, from uh, kind of electronic stuff we can use in cafes to share the gospel. Uh, with videos, there's two. <laughs> Poor Lucas, two sisters. <laughs> two um, one-time needs to monthly support and then prayer stuff. It's all right up there. Okay. So yeah. And today, as we begin to worship, uh, with one more song just to enter into His presence. And uh, if this is normally the time when we will worship the Lord with our own giving for conduit and what's happening. And if you're feeling inspired or led, if you wanted to write a separate check and just write uh, Antioch in the in the memo line. Uh, we'll put it together and uh, we don't take anything out. We just whatever, if you feel led to give to that, 100% of it will go directly to them. And actually, they met our bookkeeper last night. Uh, I get a text from Pam, like, hey, I just met these guys. Uh, as the Lord leads, you know, if, if that's what he's inspiring you to do. But uh, I'd say thank you to you guys um, for being an example for a guy like me to realize, oh, they're not our enemies. Like, that's, they're people, they're humans, that Jesus, the same blood that could have saved the, uh, the Pharisees and Sadducees that persecuted them is the same blood that can save a, an Islamic radical that wants to blow up one of our buildings, and that's the same Jesus, the same blood, and, and uh, we will be praying for you. Thank you so much for uh, being here. Please go to their website, um, and like I said, if you feel inspired to give this morning, do that as well. Thanks, guys. Um, yeah. So as the offering buckets are coming, take a moment, just ask the Lord. And guys, if you'd wait a minute just for the buckets, just to make sure that they have time for, uh, you know, just to hear what the Lord is saying. Uh, just write, like I said, Antioch on the envelope or in the memo, and we will get it to them. Abraham's, uh, no, Jacob said, when all, he said, all things are against me. When his, bro, his boys had just come back from Egypt, he'd already lost Joseph, and now he'd lost Simeon, and he was about to lose Benjamin. He's like, man, all these things are working against me. In the book of Genesis, he was wrong about what had happened. Joseph wasn't dead. He was wrong about what was happening because Simeon wasn't dead. And he was wrong about what was going to happen because Benjamin wasn't going to die. All things were not working against him. They were working for him. That's what Joseph said when they finally came. And he said, no, you guys meant this for evil, but God meant it for good. Don't panic. Don't freak out. All these things are working together for the good of those that love him and that are called according to his purpose. Pray for boldness. Pray for wisdom. And come quickly, Lord. Father, would you let these words impart into our hearts this morning? And 
give us discernment in what it means and how we ought to be examples of you. Holy Spirit, we ask for your boldness on our entire church that we will not shut up, but we will speak with boldness and with love. In Jesus' name, amen.